KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Does any of this sound familiar? You give in to the urge to buy that expensive new pair of boots, but you know your partner would have a fit, so you sneak them into the house. Or maybe you've given your best friend a loan to help him get through a tough time without telling your partner. Or maybe you have a secret account. We're talking about cheating with money or financial infidelity. More than a third of people who responded to a new survey by U.S. News said they've either committed it or been a victim of it in the past year. What do you do if you find out your partner is cheating on you with money? And how do you prevent it from happening in the first place? In a moment, we'll talk to a psychologist about this problem, but we're going to start by getting some insight from Beverly Harzog. She's a credit card expert and consumer finance analyst at U.S. News. So I was looking over the the numbers from the survey. What stands out to you from this? What stands out for me, Carol, is that 38% said they had either committed financial infidelity or they had been a victim of it in the past year. And I thought that was pretty astounding, really. Also, about um, 38% or so, about two-thirds, I believe it was, said that they had had financial stress during the past year, too, due to the pandemic. So, you know, there might be a correlation there. That's interesting, because I I was looking at the numbers from last year's survey, and the number of people who admitted to committing infidelity or who said their partners committed it, that number was 22%. So Mm -hmm. that's a kind of a healthy jump, 22% to 38% this year. And I'm wondering, as you just said, maybe people are more stressed out. Do you think it's more common, or do you think that more people are just admitting it? I think that probably it is happening more often because if you think about 2020, this was not a normal year by anyone's standards. And so many suffered financially because of the shutdowns or they, you know, they either lost their jobs or had hours cut. So it was a difficult year financially for most Americans. So I'm kind of not surprised it's gone up a little bit because I think there are some extenuating circumstances here. Yeah. What, what is the most common type of financial infidelity? The most common type that we found in the survey of those who had committed it, about 28% admitted that they had made secret purchases. The next most common was 20% had hid debts or accounts. You know, for instance, you know, you're looking at the mail and you see a, uh, a credit card issue or you don't have, you know, you don't think you and your partner have a card with this issuer, well, maybe your significant other does and you just didn't know it. (laughs) So that was pretty common too. And then 19% said they drained money from savings. And so some of this, you know, comes to light when, you know, a partner notices, oh, the accounts are off a little bit. What's going on here? And then they start investigating. So what, what's the, I mean, I know you just said people are stressed out because this year has been crazy to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, So that stress, but what's the most common reason that people hide things from their partners, financial things from their partners? You know, one of the most uh, common reasons was wanting to feel more in control of their finances. And uh, another big one, too, was wanting to avoid an argument. Hmm. And uh, well, maybe you are avoiding an argument that day, (laughs) But, but when it comes to light, Uh, there's going to be another much bigger argument because at that point, your partner is going to feel 
not just angry, but also a little betrayed because you did this behind their back. So, you know, trust is an important part of every relationship and financial trust is, is as important as emotional trust. So, you know, when someone does something behind your back, you know, it still impacts you. I mean, if the account is drained or money's coming, you know, uh, from your credit card, uh, you know, you're going to owe money on that. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, a betrayal, a loss of trust it has to be built back. Yeah. In fact, your survey discovered that one in five said their solution to financial infidelity would be to separate. Yes, I was pretty surprised by that. And, you know, yes, it's been a hard year. <laughs> and uh, Maybe all that togetherness got to be a little too much. But if you feel that your relationship is worth it, make an effort. There are some steps you can take to try to get your relationship back on tr- on track and win your partner's trust again or get to the point where you can trust your partner if they're the ones who committed it. But uh, just throwing in the towel, you know, I think maybe, you know, some of these relationships probably had other issues too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's like the last straw for you, you know, maybe it was a good decision for those involved. But if there's any hope at all, if you do want to save the relationship, you know, you can take some steps. One of the other interesting things I saw in this, uh, you asked how people discovered that their partner was cheating. And one of them, 13, 13% said they observed secrecy with electronic devices. Yes. You know, Carol, I was actually surprised that wasn't higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I think right now, especially since we're not going out like we used to, things are starting to open up. But I think most people are, are just still being very cautious And so people are on their phones all the time. So I don't think that people are noticing, oh, this person's being extra secretive about their phone today. I'm not sure people are actually noticing that as much as they may have in the past. But that is certainly a sign. Yeah. You know, more than 25 percent who discovered it said that they noticed the bank bank account balances were off. And if you've got a habit of checking your account balances, you know, every week or maybe even every couple of days, uh, you know, that's you're, you're going to see something when it's off. But some people even said they took out a loan, right, without their partners knowing. Right. <laughs> Holy cow. Right. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they lent money to, to people, you know, without asking their partner, without it being mutually agreed upon. Uh, some of them even lied about their income. And, you know, I mean, that would be, uh, you know, one way right off the top right there. Your spouse thinks you make less than you do. And that extra money is yours, I believe, is what they would be thinking. Like I said, it's really just a lack of trust. And you've got to work to build that back if you're going to be able to go forward. And that means open communication with each other. I talk about um, in my column having a money date Every week, which I know doesn't sound romantic. Yeah, how sexy is that? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you can make it comfortable or relaxing and, you know, turn it into a time when you just talk openly, have coffee, bagels, pancakes, whatever, <laughs> whatever <Wine>. you Wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's an option for those who need it. <laughs> well, you know, I say that jokingly, but in all honesty, People have very different ideas about money and how to spend it and how to save it. And a lot of that is rooted in how they were raised, perhaps their parents' ideas with money or, you know, whatever they observed with their how their parents spent or saved money or didn't save money. And so 
there's this is so loaded. I mean, it's such a loaded topic. Yes, you bring up a great point. You know, we all bring into our relationships the past, things we learned growing up and life other life experiences that we have. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my parents never discussed money, not in front of us, not in yeah. front of us kids. Uh, so I basically, I mean, I later got into credit card debt when I was in my 20s because I didn't understand personal finance. You know, it can happen to anybody. The most important thing, and hopefully you do this before the relationship gets to the point where you're totally committed to each other, you know, as early on as you can, start talking about money. And, you know, we talked about, oh, that's not sexy, but, (laughs) you know, it it kind of casually come into conversation. If you just watch how someone uses their credit card, uh, you're going to pick up some uh, ideas on how much they understand about credit. But, you know, it's very important, you know, if you set up these money dates, that it's something that you both look forward to. And it can't be that way as long as nobody is showing up to place blame on the other person. So, you know, be compassionate and be open. The more incompatible you are financially, that doesn't mean you can't eventually make things work. It just means that you're both going to have to compromise a little and meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's for a lot of people. But if you care about your relationship, you know, you'll figure this out. I liked one idea you had that you said, uh, basically you suggested each person should basically have an allowance to spend as they wish. Yes. Uh, You know, one of the reasons people commit financial infidelity, according to the survey, was that they wanted to feel more in control of their finances. You know, and maybe, you know, this is their uh, first time in a committed relationship, or maybe they've never been in one before where they had so little control. And, you know, here's where communication comes back in. You know, if someone's feeling that way, then you need to acknowledge that, you know, hey, they're not feeling good about how things are divided up. And this is one thing you can cover on your money dates. Talk about how you can uh, share the responsibilities more equally. If one of you is good at paying bills, the other is good at investments, then, you know, divide things up along those lines. And then you can report back at the weekly meeting. And it is important for people to feel like they have some money on their own. I often recommend for couples, uh, you know, having a joint checking account is fine, but you might still want to have your own credit card account so you can buy gifts for your beloved or, (laughs) you know, just have a little money on your own. But these should be agreed upon, uh, you know, actions. You shouldn't just go off on your own and do that. If you each know that the other person has a credit card account and they're going to use it for gifts or some personal things, you know, have a limit on those something that works with your cash flow every month so you can pay that bill in full. Sometimes if each person has a little more freedom, it decreases the temptation to uh, commit financial infidelity. You don't feel that need to try to take something for yourself. You know, there's not that resentment there. So it's just important to share everything. The one story I feel like I have heard time and time again, is that one partner is in charge of paying all the bills and the other partner is very hands-off. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be years down the road where the other partner discovers that the person in charge of paying the bills either wasn't responsible, wasn't paying them, or things got out of control. Yes, that often happens. And uh, that's why you don't want one person, you know, consolidating all the financial power. You know, you need to like 
spread things out a little bit. And another thing I want to point out too is that you know if one person pays all the bills, the other person uh, doesn't learn you know financial literacy. You know, it, and it's easy for that to happen. Let's say you've got kids, and one partner stays with the kids more; the other partner handles the finances. But still, try to mix it up. Everybody should be sharing the childcare and the financial responsibilities anyway. Uh, you know, one thing that um, I hear from, unfortunately, is that a lot of people will go their whole life, you know, with their spouse taking care of finances, and then either the spouse dies or there's a divorce, and this person doesn't even have a credit history or a very limited credit history because nothing was in their name. So just from a practical standpoint, it's important to have, you know, a credit card account in your name so that you build credit on your own. There is no joint credit report. You each have your own. You each have your own credit score. So it sounds like the best bet here is communication and then kind of find a balance between having your joint finances, communicating about those joint finances, and then having a little bit, uh, like you said, a credit card. Each of you has a credit card or each of you has an allowance that you have some freedom. But I think the bottom line is you got to be honest about everything that's going on. Absolutely. And that really is the hard part, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) But if you uh, if you you know cultivate an atmosphere, you know an environment where you're not blaming each other. When someone makes a mistake, it's unfortunate, but it's you know it's it's something you have to just uh, forgive and move on. You know, uh, let's say they missed uh, a payment. All right, now it's time to call that credit card issuer and uh, you know let them know what happened or uh, see if they can let this pass. You know, since uh, this is the first time this has ever happened. But do try to avoid blaming people and saying, I can't believe you let this happen or, you know, what exactly did you buy at the grocery store? <laughs> you know, if you don't get into too many accusatory conversations, people are going to feel more comfortable telling the truth. You're in this together. OK, and you can go forward together with shared financial goals if you keep talking. So you've moved from financial analyst now to couples therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I need to. Yeah, I'm sure. Don't <laughs> and we speaking all? Speaking of therapy, only 15 percent of the victims uh, said that they were attending counseling. And we talked earlier about 20 percent, you know, just separating. Counseling can help if it's a situation where you're so in debt, you need some help or you really just don't understand personal finance and you need some guidance. That's something to think about as well. And just one more thing I want to throw in is so important to identify the problem. How did this happen? Get to that, get to that first of all, so you know how to fix it. Sometimes it's not having a budget or tracking expenses. And, you know, that's something that can be easily fixed. Sometimes people overspend because, you know, they didn't have that cutoff, that limit that tells them to stop. So, that's also essential. Beverly, thank you so much, as always, for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for having me, Carol. All right, take care. After reading about this survey, I wondered about what was at the heart of financial infidelity, the emotional and psychological reasons people do this. So I called Dr. Lucy Parker. She's a psychologist and assistant professor at LaSalle. 38% of respondents said, They've either committed financial infidelity or been a victim of it in the past year. I was actually surprised that number wasn't higher, and I was wondering what your reaction is to that number. 
Yeah, my reaction is that one, when we think of social science research, there's something called social desirability bias. So sometimes people are going to report, um, especially on taboo things, maybe in a way that they think people might want to share. And so I have a little skepticism that that number might even be higher because we see you know, financial infidelity in a similar light to other infidelity, right? That it's taboo and maybe people aren't wanting to share those things, but it doesn't surprise me that it's that high. And I I would imagine it might even be higher, which is what some of the literature maybe implies. What is the number one reason people say they cheat financially? So then that's also been mixed in the research, (laughs) but the number one reason what we've seen prevalency wise is that there's miscommunication. So there can be shame behind whatever the spender is spending on. That really is kind of clumping everything together. That would be the number one reason, shame and then miscommunication with their partner. But there's a big difference between, let's say, splurging on a pair of designer boots just, you know, in the moment, as opposed to you know, systematic kind of financial infidelity where you might run up credit card bills or deplete the savings account. Right. Which is why we wouldn't necessarily pathologize if someone's saving for a new pair of shoes, doesn't tell their partner, or if maybe even they're hiding some type of financial resources to pay for their partner for a birthday or whatever. In fact, socially, we, you know, celebrate those things when they happen (laughs) as surprises. Some of the research shows that that can be linked to other poor communication patterns in the relationship, which again goes back to other interpersonal infidelity. Some of the research is is very similar that people who maybe chronically do this, it isn't just stress related. They might not feel in their relationship that they can share that even if they can, which is why couples therapy or other types of therapy are really important at that point. So in other words, more fear of what your partner may say or think as opposed to what is actually happening. Yeah, that the perceptions are very different from what what we might call the injured partner who is the partner that isn't doing the fidelity the infidelity versus the partner that is committing the acts of infidelity. Um, they might see the relationship very differently. That maybe one partner sees, hey, you can talk to me. Whereas the other partner sees, no, I, no, I can't. We usually think, when we usually think of infidelity in relationships, we usually think of sexual indiscretions. I know people, though, who have former partners who committed financial infidelity and say, they say that is far worse. Actually, yeah, the, the research shows that that can be just as traumatic, if not more traumatic than maybe a physical or sexual affair Some of that has to do with the meaning of money for both partners or each partner, right? That money isn't just, you know, a commodity sometimes, especially in the middle of a pandemic. It's something that people are using as very much a necessity for everything. And so the betrayal of taking something that could be a necessity for the home, for the kids, for living can be much more impactful than even maybe that emotional or sexual intimacy. An article in the Journal of Consumer Research says conflicts over money have become a leading cause of divorce. Would you agree with that? Yeah. In fact, it doesn't have to be just financial infidelity. Like you said, just conflict can actually result. I believe there was a report, it might have been in a family and science journal, 
but that 10% of uh, financial infidelity does result in, in divorce, but I actually would suspect that number is higher. But again, it doesn't have to be just infidelity. It could be just conflict. And then, you know, when somebody does commit financial infidelity, that of course, like any kind of infidelity, creates trust issues. You know, what what is your advice to people who you know, are dealing with this, whether you're the one committing it or whether you're the one kind of being cheated on? It's It sounds so cliche, but we, we share as counselors and as marriage and family therapists that really time is the best intervention, but time without action or time without intentionality isn't always an intervention. And so I do want to go back and emphasize the time piece that time and counseling is very important the added time. However, for both the the injured and then the the person participating in the infidelity, whether it be financial or um, sexual or physical or emotional, which we also don't talk about as much, counseling is so important to talk about those different perceptions and how trust is built on perception, that I'm relying on this person that their perception, even if it's different than mine, it's going to honor my own perception of the relationship. For example, one intervention that we utilize in either couples work or therapy is what's called a financial genogram. And so that each partner could just see what are the habits that have happened financially in the family that maybe kind of alters the perception. Maybe there was shame behind some of the infidelity. And as our shame goes up, sometimes our accountability goes down. And so if I have a lot of credit card debt, but I'm hiding that from you, Maybe there's some shame there. And so how can the one partner understand that hiding that shame is betraying the other partner, but then the partner who was betrayed realizes that maybe this is the meaning behind the infidelity, maybe the shame or what's seen in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing about that strikes me about financial infidelity, I mean, all of these infidelities lead to a sense of insecurity. But when you talk about financial infidelity, that, I think, would lead to insecurity about you being able just to meet your basic needs. So in other words, if somebody is spending money and has run you into debt, all of a sudden you're thinking, can I pay my rent or my mortgage? Can I make my car payment? All of that security you thought you have just to have your basic needs met all of a sudden goes poof. Yeah, which is why it needs to be studied more and why the research is showing that that 10% is ending in divorce. Again, I think that is even more than, than we're seeing in the research. When we think about classism in general, people aren't getting their basic needs, right? Um, there is there is a, a psychologist who is or a theorist named Abraham Maslow, and he talks about we need to have safety and shelter before we can, you know, gain intelligence or gain emotional intelligence. And as you're saying, in these relationships, if people are betraying the other partner's basic needs, then that not just threatens the emotional intimacy, but that threatens everything. That that threatens each partner's livelihood, which is why it's so crucial to talk about these things in counseling. So what advice do you have for somebody um When it comes to just taking that first step, particularly if you're the one committing the financial infidelity, because as you said, there's so much, there can be so much shame attached to this. So how do you kind of get past that shame or embarrassment or whatever it is you're feeling to kind of face this and deal with it? My first advice is 
to please seek out, even if it's individual work and counseling before uh, family counseling, remembering that, you know, you could talk to a counselor and the counselor can't share this with your spouse. And so maybe talking about that shame with an individual counselor and then engaging in family counseling would be really advantageous because both avoidance and shame will fuel anxiety. Um, and they will again be counter to accountability that the more you're going to sit in isolation with your own shame, the more you're going to do mental gymnastics to not confront it and to not tell your partner. And so if you can talk to someone who maybe has a skill set that can help you work through that shame, that can then help you to doing families therapy or jumping right into families therapy to talking to your partner in a safe environment about what's going on. There's a flip side to this, too, in that. Sometimes money can be used by a controlling partner or even an abusive partner, you know, as a weapon. And so that's different, right? Is it than this then kind of like financial infidelity? That would be different. In fact, we talk about, especially in systems work regarding family counseling, that sometimes we might pathologize one member's behavior of the family when there could be other things happening. And so there could be financial infidelity if a different, if the other partner is pursuing some very controlling behaviors. However, we don't necessarily always see those together. In fact, when we think of manipulation with money, we actually think of forms of maybe mental or emotional abuse, just like we might see other physical abuse, that money is a barrier. Um, It's an opportunity and it's a barrier. And so, yeah, that would be different usually, Carol, even though we can see them related. Mm -hmm. So let's go back then to the very beginning. You are just forming your relationship. It's getting serious to the point where maybe you are talking about uh, entering some kind of a commitment together. At what point should you sit down? And I'm assuming it's you should sit down and talk with your partner, frankly, about maybe your your ideas about money and saving and spending. Yeah, I would say as soon as you all are thinking about cohabitating, as soon as you all are thinking about any type of larger commitments, right, versus just uh, informally dating. In fact, I think money talks are very parallel to the implicit kind of avoidance that we have as far as those safe sex talks that just as much as partners might want to talk about sexual health and making sure people are tested, we encourage that same uncomfortable talk about money that in a way it's safeguarding yourself. It's safeguarding your relationship, even if it feels uncomfortable. Um, So doing that early, even if you're cohabitating, sometimes people have the misconception that, If you're cohabitating, but you're not sharing money, you don't need to talk about it. However, that is when really talks should begin, if not earlier. That way you have a plan for if things do grow um, and you have a plan if both perceptions are very, very different. In fact, in a lot of relationships, you might have someone who is more of the spender and someone who is more of the saver. And so just approaching that conversation and saying like, hey, you know, what does your budget look like? what are your plans, you know, financially, what do you want to save? We'll really save. Um, I, I think it would prevent a lot of conflict and save a lot of time later to just have that conversation earlier. Why is it so hard to have that conversation? You know, I, I think that's one thing we're still trying to understand <laughs> as counselors. Um, I have, you know, a PhD, blah, 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 but I know it wasn't the easiest thing to share with my partner when we started talking about it. I think there are a lot of societal implications and and stereotypes that come along with that conversation, right? 
for example, right now, my partner is in school. And so when we had this conversation, I think there was some guilt that he faced being a male and having stereotypes that the male has to be the primary provider and then vice versa on my end being the female and that the female needs to, you know, follow some submissive role that I can't bring up finances when really it was really beneficial. So I think uh, the research shows, but also anecdotally, I think Carol, some of the stereotypes and the discomfort that just comes along when we think of like the messiness of gender roles and money, Uh, I think makes it harder. That's all wrapped up, isn't it? All wrapped up in there. (laughs) That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon. Mm -hmm.